at what does it mean to be an elder. Um, I think it's really important because we are coming to so the last month, right? If you were here at the family meeting in May, you know that we, the leadership team, worked for hours and hours, and we went over the, all these different questionnaires, and we came up with one that we thought was good um, to try and sort of get a preemptive idea about who could be an elder. So there's all these packets back there that you guys can fill out. Um, and so it's really, it's really, really important because there is a question, I think, from whether, whether you haven't been able to come to family meetings or maybe you're kind of new to the church or you just don't know, but there's a question of what is happening. What's happening within the leadership? Are those guys looking for a pastor or what are we doing? Like what is, what's going on right now? Um, and so just wanting to be sure that you guys understand um, that, first of all, that the leadership team is, is doing a really good job of keeping all sort of the business of the church working, right? They're maintaining all the ministries, and they're working really hard, and they meet um, two hours a week, and I meet with them, but th- these guys are discussing all the different stuff, and they, everything that comes to, comes in front of them, they're, they're trying to make decisions on, but just like I'm an interim pastor, right? Like, I'm not here for the long haul, but I'm here kind of to help during the transition. That's what the leadership team is. They're helping during this transition time while we nominate, um, examine, and get elders into place. And so that's what's been happening, is like trying to decide how do we do the nomination process? <clears throat> what does the examination process look like? All these big questions, what do, what do we do? There's no elders, there's no pastors, what, how, do, how do we do this? How do we get these men into place? And so um, I want to share with you some of the scriptures that have led these conversations so that you know What's going on? Like, there's, there, there, are elder, there are men who have been nominated, um, and these are the reasons why these men did what they did. So it's a topical sermon, right? We're going to be flipping back and forth from Acts to Timothy to Titus, and so we'll kind of be all over the place a little bit. Um, but the first thing to ask is, why is there a nomination process at all? Let's look at Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. So we have the beginning of the early church, and they're kind of similar to what we're, like they're trying to figure out how do we move forward, what do we do, how do we organize this thing, what are we doing? And so if we look, starting in verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the twelve summoned the full member of the disciples and they said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, so what we have here is a description of what the early church did, right? So we, we, we want to make sure that when we read the Bible, there's a difference between descriptive and prescriptive, right? Descriptive is we read what the early church did, and we say, well, I don't have a better idea than that. Let's just do it that way, right? It's not a command to do it this way, but the apostles are brought this, and so they are like, well, we, don't, we have to devote ourselves to prayer, to reading of Scripture, to studying. Let's let the congregation, right? They say, go and pick out from among yourself these men who are going to do this. Now, in this instance, they're talking more about the deacon role, but it's the same thing that applies when it comes to elder. 
So the leadership team, we followed their example, I think because it's a good method. Um, and so since the beginning of May, right, there's been those packets, all of this stuff. The nomination process, while it's going to close today in some sense, in the sense of like this first group of men who are going to be nominated, or who have been nominated, who are going to be examined, that process is always open. So just understand that that's why they did this. That's why we sat around and came up with three pages of nomination, right? And then we would say, well, then who is doing the examination? If we did a nomination, like we have all of these men, who is going to do the examination? Well, if you're a savvy reader, what did we just read in Acts chapter 6? The apostles said, congregation, you pick them out, and, what? and then they said, we will appoint them. Right? The apostles will do the job, do the hard work of saying, okay, these are the men you, that, that you think are qualified. We'll pick out the ones and we'll, we'll put them into this leadership role. But we have no apostles, right? We have no apostles here. We have no elders here either. And so normally that's what would happen is that the elders would examine candidates and then they would say, well, we're going to appoint these people. We're, these are the men whom we think um, are qualified and these are not. So how do you do that in a church where there is no elders? Well, once again, we went to the Bible. We're like, what? The group of men are saying, what do we do? How do we move forward? And that question always, every time that I've been in a meeting with those guys, the answer is, let's go to the Bible. What does the Bible say? How does it tell us to move forward in such a case as this? So Titus chapter 1, verse 5. It's another description, right? It's not a command. We don't have to do it this way, but this is what... Paul did with Titus. Titus chapter 1 verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might uh, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus is not an elder. He's not an apostle. He's not a leader in the early church. He is a disciple of Paul. He's trying to learn from Paul. And so Paul, by his authority, looks at Titus and says, I'm granting you the authority to go and do this. I'm granting you to go into these towns to appoint elders in every town. And so this is what the leadership team, we looked at, okay, well, this seems to be, once again, we don't know what else to do. There's no better idea, and this is what the early church did, and it makes a lot of sense, right? This is what these guys did, so we're just following the example of what has happened here. And so the idea will be that there will be pastors of other churches who are going to come alongside men of, within this church to do the examination, right? Because if we draw pastors from other churches, they're going to come in and be like, Toby who? I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know that guy. I've never met him, right? So they have experience in doing the examination, but they don't know the people. And so that's how this is going to work. We're going to pair up people who know other, we're going to pair up men within this church with people who know the process. And so, right, that's, and so that's sort of still being worked out and figured out, but that's what it's going to look like. There's going to be an examination. And what then does the examination look like? So this is really important. If you stay in Titus chapter 1, right, if we keep reading verse 5, after verse 5, he says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, for an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good 
self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold to the firm, trustworthy word that was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's a lot of things, right? Mainly character, right? Mainly, who is this man when nobody is looking? How does he behave? How does he treat people? How does he treat his family? How does he discipline his children? How does he manage his household? Now, I think it's really unfortunate that verse 6 says that his children are believers. Fathers, how many of you have control over whether your children are believers? Yeah, me either, right? If I could, I would just be snapping my fingers. Even Caleb at three, I would be like, yeah, let's get him saved. He can talk, let's do it, right? If I could control that, then I would, and I would have my kids saved the moment that I thought it was normal or appropriate, right? The word here is actually pistos, which is faith, which I believe a better translation, and most people would agree that a better translation is that your children are faithful. So they may not be believers, But they are faithful to the word of their parent. They are faithful. Now, it doesn't mean, once again, if well, if your kid ever disobeys one time, you're out. Like, you're not qualified. But if your children, if a father is able to keep his household under control, keep his children to be faithful, not open to the charge of debauchery, right, or insubordination. And so there's a lot going on. And that's just one of the passages, right? There's a lot of requirements, so the examination process will look like going through Titus, flip over to 1 Timothy, reading through 1 Timothy, which a lot of it is similar. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, elder, deacon, I mean, sorry, elder or bishop or pastor, depending on your version, it's going to have any of those words. They're all interchangeable, right? The office of overseer, he desires the noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, if you filled out one of those packets, you probably, hopefully, read these verses, right? These, this is what God requires of his overseers, of his elders. Now, it's really, really important that we see that over and over again, especially in this passage, it says the elder must be. And then he gives a description. He must be this, and he must be that. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, well, he's got nine of the ten, and he can teach really well, and he's doing all of these things, but, you know... This one little part, right, that he's, he's really failed in that and he's struggling in that and he's not found victory in that. He doesn't have control over his own sin in this one area. But look at all the others. He must be all of these things. We have to take that very, very, very seriously. It's all, once again, character. And then there is one thing in both of these, right, that we see, that we saw in both, 
that is a little bit of a gift from the Lord paired with an ability, and that is the ability to teach. Right? That is not something that everybody can do. Even if you're well-read, even if you, like, you, you understand the Bible really well, I think there is a gift of teaching, and I think there is also a skill that you work on. Um, you can ask Miss Johnny. Miss Johnny came to our church when we planted it like seven years ago. Um, and all the time, regularly, she tells me, you're such a better preacher than you were then, right? There's a skill involved to some degree that you, you just, you work on these things. You, you understand, like, it's the pastor or the preacher or somebody who is teaching in public doesn't have to shy away from public speaking skills and, like, reading those kinds of books. There is some skill involved. And so God is saying, look, if you're going to be an overseer, you have to be able to teach. It doesn't have to be from the pulpit. It doesn't have to be in a big group. It doesn't have to be... It, there's, there's not a limit on what it can or cannot be. You just have to be able to do it. You have to be able to read your Bible, discern what it's saying, and be able to communicate that to somebody. Not everybody is able to do that, and that's Okay. But the elder, the overseer, must be these things. We'll look at 1 Peter 5 again. We looked at this back in February. Let's look at it again really quickly. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11. So Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves and all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God has a lot to say about this. He didn't just say, ah, pick the most popular people. Pick the people who you think, ah, they probably will do a good job. Israel started their nation off this way, right? They picked the tallest, most handsome, good-looking guy that they could get to be the king, and it blew up in their face. It seemed like a good idea, right? He's going to be, he's charismatic. He's going to be able to interact with other nations, and he's going to be able to bring peace. Like, look at him. Everybody loves him. He's a great guy. We all love him. But he didn't have, this is what must be for the king. He didn't have it, and he failed. The elders have a list of things that they must be. The second major portion of the sermon this morning is what we read from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now, let me just be really clear. I listened to a sermon this week, and it was about this, and I'm going to paraphrase it for you because I'm going to take like 45 minutes and probably drop it down to like five to seven minutes. Um, this is a sermon called The Disposition of an Elder, and it was preached by Vody Bauckham. So just if you know who that is, if you've ever listened to him, go listen to him. You can just zone out for the next seven minutes, don't listen to me, and go listen to him. His sermon on this blew my mind to the point where I'm like, I'm, I just got to like, I got to find a way to get it in there. Like it's here. We're going to talk about it. We're going to look at these things. But please, if you have the time and the ability Go find that sermon. Listen to his understanding because he's, 
He's got to be the greatest preacher alive, right? I mean, he just the guy is an amazing preacher, and he sticks to the Bible, and he has a lot of really insightful things to say. And so I want to boil it down because I know that not everybody has the ability um, or the, um, the, the umption to go and do that. So um, what we read earlier from 2 Timothy chapter 4. So if we've seen what the qualifications are, what we see here is the disposition of somebody who is leading the church. How should they be acting? We have all of these qualifications. What does that look like when you're interacting with people, when the rubber meets the road, how is it that you talk and interact with folks? And so this is a really great example of Paul experiencing a lot of things that leaders and pastors and elders in the church will experience. The first thing that we see here is that his life has been marked by disappointment and loss. So he says, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Men, how many times has this happened to you, where you've discipled a young man, you've invested in them, you've given them time and effort, and you give hours and hours that you'd rather be spending with your family, but you're going to invest in this young guy who you know, you see that he needs somebody to come alongside him. And they profess Christ. And they talk about how they want to change. And they talk about all of these things. And then they disappear. The next thing you know, they're back to the way they were, right? They're living with their girlfriend. They're doing drugs. They're doing this. They're doing that. Who knows, right? This happened to me when I was pastoring the church here in town. We had a married couple. um, And I would go and visit with them. And like two hours a week, for like months and months. And usually it's like on a Friday night at like 6 o'clock. Like, that's the last thing in the world that I want to be doing, right? It's, it's, it's a, uncomfortable and it's hard. And like, I don't know what to say. And I've told them, but you know, like, I, I would drive to these counseling sessions completely terrified, having no idea what I was going to say. And just praying, like, Lord, you have to be there. Because if you don't show up, like, I have nothing to offer these people. There's nothing within me that's going to fix anybody's marriage. Lord, you've got to do it. I'm just going. I'm a willing vessel. You've got to give me the words to say. And every time he did. And for hours, I would sit with these people, and the, the, the struggles in their marriage would come out, and we would deal with them, and we would talk about them, right? And we'd say, no, you can't do that, and you can't do this. Look, that's sin. Don't you see? This is sin. You have to repent. You have to ask for forgiveness of your spouse. And we would just go through all of this stuff, this nitty, gritty, gross stuff that they were struggling with and dealing with, and we're going through it, and it's like months and months and months, and it finally looks like progress is being made. And then the husband says, well, the job is transferring me. It's sending me away. I was like, I knew in my heart, like, what was happening. He wanted to get a divorce, and he knew that I wouldn't let him, right? He knew that if I was his overseer, that if I was his elder, I was not going to ever relent. I wasn't ever going to be like, yeah, man, it's fine. This is bad. Just get a divorce. Be done with it. Move on. Go about your day. He knew I would never say that. And so they left, and they moved away, and Six-ish months later, deleted any contact right on social media, and then all of a sudden, they're living in different cities. I invested so much, and it's hard to not look at that situation and be like, man, Lord, what did you do? Why did you waste my time? There's all of these temptations to be like really discouraged by that, and I was. The, the, The honest truth is that it is discouraging. To be an elder means to invest in people who will let you down, and that's okay. 
That is the calling of the men who are called into the eldership, is to do the hard things and receive no thanks for it many times, to receive nothing from it on the other side a lot of the times. And so, as Paul does, he has this friend who has abandoned him for the world. We also see that there are people leaving his side, not because they have abandoned to the world, but because they are godly young men. God has raised them up, he has discipled them, and he recognizes the need to send them out. That's hard to do. Imagine the young men in this church who are growing, and you guys, you're, you're discipling him. And then all of a sudden he says, the Lord is calling me to go do ministry halfway across the world, or I want to go to Denver Right? Our church in, in Durango just sent the most talented, like, godly young man that they have in their church. And instead of saying, we want to hold on to this guy, because look, he can lead worship, he can preach, he can do all of these things. He's got all of this stuff going for him in ministry. He's a young father who takes care of his family well. He's all of the things that we read about, about an elder. And they say, we've got to let him go we got to let him go do ministry. He's going to plant a church. That's hard to do. It's hard to let young, talented men who you know could be an asset to your church and say, God is calling them elsewhere. We have to let them go. And so Paul does this as well. You see, we want to hold on to that stuff. Not only because we see them as an asset, but because they are our friends. right? And so this is a hard thing to do. The second thing is that an elder knows how to deal with conflict. And how does he deal with it? He's calling out names, man. How many, of you, how many times when people sin against you, you're like, well, something happened and it wasn't so great, but I don't really want to, you know, I don't want to get into it. Paul is naming, not just names, it's Alexander, the coppersmith, right? There can't be too many of those guys running around. He's calling these guys out. Look, there is conflict that has happened. This is the guy who did it. He hurt me, and he disagreed with the message that was being sent. So one way that he deals with conflict is to call it out precisely, right? To call it out by name with specifics is very important. Like, this is hard to do. How many of you like doing that? The majority of people don't like conflict. We don't want to be like, yeah, so-and-so over there at the Verizon store did this thing to me, and you guys should all avoid him. We don't enjoy that, right? But Paul is doing it. He's making, he's having these hard conversations because that is what the elder is called to do. They are to protect the flock from the sheep. Wait, the, the, the flock from the wolves, right? The sheep. Protect the flock from the wolves. I heard it come out of my mouth. I said, that doesn't make any sense. From the wolves, right? This guy must clearly be a danger to them. He's not just be like, well, when you go there, just there's a couple of people around. You should just be very, very discerning. No, this guy, avoid him. He's a wolf. He's coming after you. Don't talk to him. He's gonna, he will try and harm you. And more importantly, he will try and harm the message of the gospel. Second kind of conflict is that he calls, he calls Mark out to come and join him, right? Or that's what he's asking. Bring Mark. Now, Bible scholars, what, what happened with Paul and Barnabas? Second, and why did they split? Because Mark abandoned them, right? 
So you go back to Acts. You look at the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas, they go on one missionary journey together. Mark leaves them in the middle of it. They come back to Jerusalem, wherever their home base is, right? And so now they're wanting to do their second one, and Mark is back. And Barnabas says, let's bring him with us. And Paul's like, no, we're not taking him with us. He abandoned us in the middle of our last one. I'm not going to take him. So Paul and Barnabas split ways. And here Paul is. I don't know how it happened, right? We don't get the details of how it happened. But Paul found a way to fix that conflict with his brother. He's calling for Mark to come because he knows that he is good and helpful in ministry. So somewhere along the way, I don't, and maybe it wasn't even Paul, I don't know. But somewhere along the way, that conflict was resolved. Elders have to be seeking to resolve conflict at all times. Right? We, we want, that's what we want. We don't want there to, to remain strife within the church, within the body, within, between us and anyone else. An elder knows how to deal with these things. We also know that Paul is at the end of his life. If you look just up above, verses 6 and 7, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Paul knows, maybe not the day, but he knows it's coming, right? He's dying. He's going to die. He may never leave this prison cell. He's going to die soon. And what does he say? Bring me my parchments. Bring me, my, bring me my scrolls, right? He's not dead yet. He's drawing breath. He's going to study. He's going to read God's word. He's going to write. He's going to do all of the things that God has called him to do until he no longer draws breath. He hasn't given up on anything. He's not saying, woe is me. Everybody come and, and pity me. I'm dying. Look at all the things that have happened. He says, I have a task to do, and it's not done until my heart stops beating. There's a call of an elder, right? Nothing can stop the elder from doing these things, from studying, from writing, from doing the calling that God has placed on their life. The last thing, and once again, this is all in that sermon. I really encourage you, go find it. There's a website called sermonaudio.com. That's where I listen to most of mine. Go and find it. It will blow your mind. Um, and so I, I say this because all of these things I'm condensing down, and he did it way better than me. But the last thing that I learned from listening to this sermon was that he talked about how an elder knows how to deal with personal offenses. So once again, if you look at Alexander, right? Alexander, he's not mad at him because he disagreed with Paul. He's mad at him because he disagreed with the message of God. It wasn't about him being offended. Well, this guy disagreed with me, and now I had to take personal offense, and we have now conflict with one another. He took, he took problem with the gospel, and so that is what created conflict with Paul. It's not about him. And then in verse 16, right, at his first defense, no one came to stand by him, but all deserted them. May it not be charged against them. Paul's standing before the Roman court to try and defend himself and all that he has done and all of these men who he has trained and discipled, none of them are there. Now Paul rightfully could have been like, look, these guys weren't even willing to come and stand by my side. He could have been upset by that. He could have taken offense, but he says, don't let it count against them. Don't charge it against these men. You see, as elders... They're going to endure false accusations, harsh criticisms, all kinds of things, right? Thankless tasks. They're going to sacrifice time with their family. And many times that will bring them to a point where they don't want to keep doing it. 
They want to quit. Church, that's where you can be praying. All of these things that happened to Paul in one way or another are going to happen to the future elders of this church in some way or fashion, right? People are going to let us down. People are going to let those men down. I say us. I'm not going to be one of those guys. But like the elders that you guys examine and vote on and bring in, it's going to be really difficult for them. If you haven't started praying for them, now is the time. Pray for them through the examination. Pray for them when they become, when they get into that office, when they're voted on and they're leading the church because this is really, really hard and difficult task. Now, really quickly, I want to talk about the difference between elders and deacons because I think this is a confusion that many people have within the church. So once again, in Acts chapter 6, what we read earlier The apostles are not willing to put aside their reading and studying to to meet the needs, the physical needs of the church. And so that's when they call the people out, and that's where the deacons are coming from. So the elders are devoted to the spiritual leading of the church, while the deacons are devoted to meeting the physical needs of the church. So you can see why. These are two different offices. You can see why they're not the same. And it's not that, when I came into ministry, I was was 19 years old when I got ordained. And and somebody was stupid enough to hire me as a youth minister. I'm like two years older than some of the youth in the church. And somehow they thought it was a great idea. I have no idea what I'm doing. And the first pastor that I worked under, he just assumed, like, oh, you must, he's like, it's good that you're starting early. You got to get in 10 years of the youth minister if you ever want to be a pastor. And I was thinking at that time, like, I don't think God called me into youth ministry so that one day I can, like, be promoted to the office of pastor. Now, the Lord changed my heart over the years, and I've been, um, I, I think he has called me to be in the pastoral role rather than the youth ministry role. I love kids. I love youth. I did it for a long time. It was a lot of fun. But Nerf Wars at midnight stopped becoming fun when I started having kids, right? And I'm 30-something years old, and it's like 10.30, and I'm like falling asleep, and all the other kids are drinking Red Bull and staying awake all night. And so I started realizing just by life and then God's calling. But this is sometimes what people look at when they look at the Bible. Oh, let's get him in as a deacon so that he can be promoted one day into the eldership. These are completely different offices with completely different skill sets, completely different, I mean, not completely, but a lot of different requirements a man who wants to come up here and redo electrical or fix the thing or mow the grass and that's where he feel god calling him to do is not necessarily going to want to stand in the pulpit you see how those things don't really connect right those are two different skill sets and so there's two offices within the church we, we see it in first timothy right flip back to first timothy chapter three because not only there are two different sets of qualifications Let's read for the deacon. It's important because there's something here that doesn't show up for the elders. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not greedy, uh, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as a deacon as if they, as, um, if they are to prove themselves blameless. Their, their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is Jesus Christ. It's a big thing. No teaching, right? There's no requirement for them to be able to teach. Second thing, why is there a requirement for their wife? 
What is that about? What do the elders do? They are in charge of the spiritual health of the church. They give spiritual counsel. They're teaching from the Bible. This role is limited to men in the church, right? But the deacon who is out doing lots and lots of meeting physical needs, this is, it is, it is understandable that their wife would be going along with them doing a lot of these things because that role is not as limited, right? Now, the deacon title itself is limited to men, but the work of the deacon is not necessarily limited. And so, the deacons that I know, their wives are right alongside them all the time, doing all, a lot of the ministerial stuff. Now, maybe not fixing the plumbing at the church, right? But when they're going out and visiting families who need help, who need money, who need a place to stay, a lot of the times, wives go with them. It's a different job. We're going to be drawn to usually one or the other. It's not a deacon is going to graduate into this. And so I need, it's really important that we understand that there is a difference between these two. Last thing is the role of the congregation in all that we have talked about. So in 1 Peter 5, we read, the church is called to submit, to trust in their elders. Now, that's going to be a difficult task at first, right? Because there's going to be men who are elders who, this is new to them. It's as new to them as it is to you, as a regular congregation, right? If you're not being called into eldership, recognize that that is a new job for them. And they're going to be struggling to figure out how it works. Figure out how to do that job. The church, you guys, have to trust that they're trying their best, that they're going forth, doing everything that they can, and to trust in them and to submit to them. But we are also told to hold our elders accountable. So if you're still in 1 Timothy, switch over to chapter 5, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So it doesn't say don't ever do it. But if you're going to do it, there is a level of respect within the eldership office that you shouldn't just go to them one-on-one and be like, well, I think this might be happening and I'm going I'm to confront you on this. But rather, to respect that office, two or three people who know for sure that these things are happening, that there is sin going on, that there is, that there is change that needs to be made. But so there is a restriction, but it is a command for the church to hold those men accountable. They're holding each other accountable, but we as the church hold them accountable as well. It's important. So why is this important for us to understand? Why should we know what the eldership is? Why we're doing it this way? Well, the church's primary purpose is to preach the gospel through to the world, right? And the elders of the church, they dictate how this happens. You see... If there are men in that position who don't value scripture, who don't value the gospel, who don't value God's word and following his command, the church will look very different than if you have a group of godly men who say, we will never compromise on God's word. Don't care what it costs us. We don't care what's going on. We are going to do what God's word said. Even if it shrinks the church, even if half the church leaves, we don't care. We're doing it. This is what's right, and we will stand on that till our dying breath. We will not negotiate with God's word. It is the truth. When you have men like that, God will grow the church. It may not be always having a new family every week, but your hearts, your discipleship will grow. Every single person who attends this church is going to go grow closer to the Lord. I, let me just... 
how many of you have ever been in a church where they use prayer as a transitional tool? You know what I mean by that? They pray so that people can get off the stage. Or they pray so that people can get on the stage. Right? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever seen? Like, they don't look at prayer and take it seriously, is what I'm saying. You recognize that this church doesn't do that because the leadership recognizes the importance of prayer. Have made a decision to say, we're not going to do that. We're going to take time to pray as a family. We're going to take time, every, a big chunk of time, far more than any church I've ever been in know it takes when it comes to praying for one another, for each other, for the needs of this church, for the needs of the world. Right? We take a huge amount of time, and that's great, and that's a wonderful thing. You know why that's happening? Because you have godly men on your leadership team right, who are making these decisions. Every week we come to the table and we take communion. Is there a better physical representation of the gospel than what we see in the broken bread and the cup? How often do normal Baptist churches take communion? Maybe three, four times a year. Some of them once a year. I'm not saying it's bad to take, right? The church is not in sin. But the leadership of this church has said we make a decision that we want, to, we want to put this in front of the people every single week. We're not going to back away from these things, right? The leaders that you pick, the elders that come into office, will change the way that the church works for the good or for the bad. And so when you see that nomination back, you're like, eh, no big deal. I'm not going to fill that out. I don't want to do that. I encourage you. If there is a man on your heart that God has laid on your heart that you think, man, he, he, he embodies all of these things that we have talked about. He is a man who can stand up to discouragement, right? He is a man who will stand up in the face of conflict and do what God says. If you haven't, I'm, I, this is not a commercial for the, oh, fill out the packet so that we'll feel good about it. But this is, a, this is your church. And these are the men who are going to lead your church. This is hugely important. So I'm asking you, there's time left, right? Take this afternoon and pray about this. If God has laid somebody on your heart, call them up and say, man, I see all of those things in you and I think you would be a good leader. Will you please consider doing this? It's serious business. Why? Because these are the men who are going to love each other and the church. These are the men who are going to fight off the wolves who come attacking every single week. These are the men who are going to pray for you when you didn't even know that they knew your needs and you didn't expect them to. And they're going to pray long beyond when anybody else would. They will be there at midnight if you're having a crisis of faith. These are the men who are going to serve you as your spiritual leaders. What more important thing can there be within the church? The gospel, right? Jesus is far more important than these things. But when it comes to understanding, when it comes to knowing who has got your back, these are the men who are going to do it. And I'm telling you, you have to take this seriously. They are on the front lines. They are fighting your battles and their own. They are standing shoulder to shoulder with you. And they will not give up on you, no matter how long you struggle. In other words, they are trying to be as Christ-like as they can. They are trying to embody and exemplify the message of Jesus Christ in this church. It's important who these men are. We want men who will serve like Jesus, who will love like Jesus, who will always speak the truth. So I ask you, 
If you haven't started praying for these nominees, do it. Start now. Start this very afternoon, right? Pray for them. Pray for them as they go through the examination. Pray for them as they go through the training in the future. Pray for them because they need it, because this is an impossible task that the church is calling them to. But God gives a way for it to happen. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We know that we need help. Even with the Holy Spirit, Lord, we know that we need people on this earth to point out our sin because we can become blind to it. And we become, we allow our ears to be deaf to your leading. And so, Lord, we need godly men to lead this church. Lord, we are asking that you would be a part every step of this process, Lord. If there are some last-minute nominations that come in today, Lord, that, that you would be guiding those who are seeking to nominate. Lord, those who are going to be nominated, that you would guide them. Lord, that you would guide the hand of the examiner so that they would know if this is a man that you want leading your church or not. Lord, we can't know on our own, so we ask for your guidance, for your help, for your love and patience as a church as we go through this process. Lord, this is vital to the life of the church, to have men who are qualified, who love you, come into these positions. And so, Lord, we ask. We, we know that we're not capable of doing it on our own, and so we ask that you would do it for us or that you would help us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.